Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today, we welcome back my pal, former Wargasm bassist, Bob Mayo. Bob, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Brent. Very good to be back. You know, when I opened up Skype, which I never use, I saw that the last time we had spoken, according to Skype, was last June. Do you believe that? Yeah, June 21st, I know. Yeah, that doesn't seem right. Maybe we should uh, figure out a way to get in touch outside of the no sleep thing. No, I, I agree. I'm completely open to that. I always love having you on the show. This is your third time now. And I'm going to tell you that, you know, having you back uh, is a no brainer. You've introduced me to great new music. You are an informed, passionate, intelligent, sincere music fan. You know, it's always great to have you back on. So thank you for doing this. Well, thanks for the invite again. It's great. You know, one of the highlights of doing this show is beyond getting to know you better, but also I love to hear the impressions of the songs that maybe you'd never heard before. Well, there's a couple on your list this time. So yeah, there's a, there's a couple I haven't heard. But you know, in addition to that, there are a couple that I love that I'm so glad that uh, you included on your list. We have a lot to talk about, my friend. We do. And you know what I noticed after I compiled this list is a lot of these songs for some strange reason, it must just be where my head's at lately, but they're all around seven minutes long. I was thinking that when I was going through these, that these are not, you know, the typical 305, uh, you know, radio edit tunes. There's some long tunes in here for sure. So let's get into them. The first one is Golden Earring. She flies on strange wings and it's the long version, right? Of course. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> yeah. this was released as a single and it was just part one. Okay. And, and a matter of fact, if you look online and, and research it a little bit, you will find that the official title of the single was She Flies on Strange Wings Part 1. Oh. So, yeah, to, to hear back in the day, to hear the whole thing, Part 1 and Part 2, you had to have the vinyl. But nowadays, you know, you just click a mouse a few times and you can hear the whole thing. But this song, this was a real find for me. I, I kind of fell into Golden Earring. Every now and then I would do a search for... A song, I'd, I'd find a song I really liked, and thanks to the wonders of the internet, you can spend hours just digging and digging and digging. And I'm really glad I did with Golden Earring because they have a ton of great albums and a ton of great songs. I mean, their catalog is huge. They've been together since the late 60s, and they're actually still together. And I think the only band that has had the same consistent lineup with no lineup changes for longer than them is Easy Top. Any one of their first probably 15 or 16 studio albums is just stellar. And this song in particular really struck me. And in the middle where they break the song into the part one and the part two, there's an instrumental section where they just kind of jam back and forth on two notes and build something on that. It's just a beautiful thing. And they do that a lot on the, their first, probably their first decade, break the song down into a just a couple of notes and go back and forth with it and you never know where it's going to go and it's kind of a trademark thing for them this is a really great example of something you're only going to hear on an album from the 70s not on a single not on the radio but no bands are doing stuff like this anymore i just think it's fantastic and if you're feeling adventurous go to youtube and listen to this and make sure you're not picking part one or part two you want the whole seven minutes it's just glorious yeah I think a lot of people, you know, have heard of Golden Earring through Radar Love and, you know, Twilight Zone in the 80s. But Radar Love, you know, came out in 1973. You know, this, this band's been around since the 60s, right? Right. Yep. Um, this is a great example of, like I said, uh, let's take Deep Purple, for example. If you walk into any room with more than five people in it and say Deep Purple, they're going to say Smoke on the Water. Smoke mm -hmm. on the Water is, is really not a good example of what Deep Purple were capable of. And the same thing goes for Golden Earring. Um, Twilight Zone is pretty representative of where the band was in the 80s, but uh, Radar Love was kind of an anomaly. It kind of sticks out on the album Moontan. This is a much better example of what, where they were at, and there's a mm -hmm. lot of stuff like this in the early catalog. You know, that's a good uh, comparison to Deep Purple because you're absolutely right. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people will kind of associate just that smoke on the water tune with them. But when you think about the deeper cuts and the, the real depth of some of those albums like Machine Head and uh, In Rock, you know, there's so much more to Deep Purple. I don't know, as I said, a lot about Golden Earring, but this is why I like having you on the show is because you bring in bands like this who you know are known for their you know their singles but then there's so much stuff underneath that if you explore a little bit take some time and, and dig in there's a lot of good stuff in there exactly right 
Uh, so I recommend Golden Earring. Check it out. And you can get this on Spotify too. Uh, next tune, Love. This is such a great pick. It's the fourth song on one of my favorite records, Aerosmith Rocks Combination. The, yeah, this song, I mean, it's just the definition of badass. It's it's really just filthy. And I don't mean lyrically. It's just so... Raw. It's, yeah, raw, scary. Uh, it's so real. And I know on one of my previous visits to your show before I told the story of of um, how I made a friend through Kiss. Mm-hmm. And so this is the part two of that story. This The visit to my friend's house with the Kiss record... Oh, wow. It it turned into kind of a regular thing. Me and a couple of other friends would take the bus to his house instead of going home. And his brother had a pretty big record collection. He had a lot of stuff by like Foghat, Black Sabbath. I remember he had um, BTO, Not Fragile, uh, which is a great record. And he had uh, Aerosmith's Toys in the Attic and Rocks. Over the course of like six or eight months, I heard all that stuff. Uh, he told me while we were listening to Rocks that this band is from Boston. I just could not believe it. When you're a kid, you think that rock stars are from L.A. or L.A. or, or New York, yeah, or Mount Olympus or somewhere. <laughs> I knew Walk This Way. I think the previous year it was just a huge AM radio hit, and you could you couldn't go anywhere without hearing it for a couple of weeks anyway. And I knew that song, and I knew it was huge, and. To find out that that band was from literally 20 minutes up the highway was really a mind bender. Uh, And as I grew up and developed aspirations to become a musician myself, this knowledge that they were from my neck of the woods just made that goal seem so much more attainable. And it formed a bond with me in that album. That album was like kind of symbolic of of what I aspired to do when I was a teenager. As a 15-year-old I guess I could say from a severely dysfunctional family situation, I desperately wanted to transform myself. And it wasn't just a pipe dream. It was actually something that could happen. And that song and that record is just a symbol to, you know, what I hoped could be my future. So I have a huge emotional attachment to that record and I'll never get tired of that album. And and combination is an excellent example of, of Aerosmith when they were at their most, ferocious and the most dangerous uh it's a shame that you know some bands just stick around for too long and kind of lose their focus and evolve which i guess is is expected but this golden period in aerosmith's history was was just killer and it was just the thing that i needed to hear at that particular point in my life and i'm grateful for that I think definitely Rocks was Aerosmith at its zenith, I, I would say. I think this is their fourth record, I think. Yes. You know, they they were well into the drugs at this time, but whatever they were doing, it was working for them. It didn't matter. You know, you had that one-two punch of Back in the Saddle, the album kicks off with, and I think Last Child is after that, which, you know, combination is an overlooked song on this record. You know, that speaks to the strength of the overall record. Sick as a Dog is on here, too. It's so good. This is a great pick. I'm so glad you included this. I, You know, it was another excuse to take the CD out and listen to it again, too. So, Oh, please. I, I listened to it today. I was telling you earlier before we started, I you know, I was going through your tunes, and I, I got stuck on Aerosmith, and I listened to the whole of Rocks. It was great. Well, you know, it's a tough album to put on and, and just cherry pick. It's just so fantastic from start to finish. Oh, it is. There's no question. Yeah, I love it. I'm going to go and spin it when we're done here, actually. So your next tune is heavy, man. Nobody has ever brought Cygnus X1 onto the show by Rush. Isn't this split into two? Like one part of it is on Farewell to Kings and the other part's on Hemispheres? We don't want to rush into that. We don't want to scare your audience away with the the (laughs) the nerdism of this Rush this chapter in Rush history, it, 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 I'll get to that. But All right. initially, it, it started off as just this one single song. And honestly, I don't even look at it as a song so much. It's, it's a movie. In my head, it's a movie. Nerd alert, it's about a spaceship that gets sucked into a black hole. Of course it is. So it's Rush. But uh, <laughs> the way they constructed the music to, the, to support this story is just incredible. On the one hand, we were talking about rock and roll. I don't even know if the term prog rock existed back then, but to hear three guys ambitious enough to sit down and write a song about a spaceship that gets sucked into a black hole, the music supports it so well that you know that I think they probably had the idea 
of what the song was going to be about before they wrote the song because all the different movements in the song really support that story in such a cinematic way. It, it's a headphone song, eyes closed, please, and it takes you on a journey. You're in space. If you have any kind of an imagination, you will see things that will amaze you, I, I promise you. And for a kid, again, a kid that needed a reason and a means to escape reality without doing drugs, getting pulled into a black hole sounded really great to me. So it had that attraction too. I mean, as far as escapism goes, that's like the, the zenith of escapism. Yeah. Um, it, I'm sure it's really subjective, but there are images this song conjures in my head still to this day that they're so real. They're like memories of a movie I saw. Every step of the narrator's journey is supported by the music in it. As a musician, it's just kind of unfathomable to me that three guys sat around and constructed this piece. It's it's really incredible. Hey, guys, what do you want to write about? How about a song about a spaceship that gets sucked into a black hole? Hey, okay, great, let's do it. Just a one-of-a-kind band. Like There'll never be another band like that ever again. Oh, no, 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 never. The other side of the song, the other kind of aspect of it, is that it's almost like comparable to a Greek tragedy, because I think that the protagonist witnesses like a struggle between logic and emotion. I think it's Dionysus, and I can't remember who the other one is. Doesn't Cygnus, don't they elect him as like the god of balance between logic and emotion or something like that? Yes. It's on the next album, Hemispheres. We find out what happened to the spaceship when it comes out the other side of the black hole. Uh, that is side one of hemispheres is the song called hemispheres and it's all about that ship arrives and you know it must be where the gods dwell mm -hmm. right you you name checked all the pertinent gods but they're having an issue there wherever they are about logic versus emotion mm -hmm. and he suggests that they try balancing the two and they name him the god they name him cygnus the god of balance Right. So not only are we talking about songs about black holes, we're talking about songs about gods. We're talking about a song that really, if you put the two together, it's over one side of an album. Part two is one side of a whole record. Part one is, mm -hmm. is probably seven or eight minutes by itself. But you put them all together, it's almost an hour of, of this kind of thing. It's, it's really kind of mind-blowing. I, 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 as I said, I think previously, I've never done drugs, but with music like this, why would you need to? <laughs> You know what's fascinating for me about this is that Rush were able to get away with this, you know, and there wasn't any, well, maybe there was a little bit of record company pressure, people saying, I don't know if this is going to fly, but they put this out there and people appreciate it and still appreciate it now. This would never fly today. You could never do something like this today. There's only three people, too. It's not like, this is music that could easily be adapted for an orchestra. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so complex and so um, expansive. If you think about it, at one point it was probably constructed by one guy behind the drum set and two guys with a guitar sitting in chairs in a rehearsal space. The way the music supports the ideas and the narrative is really something special. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with Rick Emmett about that recently, about The Long and Winding Road by Paul McCartney and the Beatles. I can't remember what the musical term for it is, but there's a parallel between uh, the lyrics describing a long and winding road and how the chords actually begin on the home key and move all the way through like a long and winding road and resolve on the home key when the song's done. That is musical genius. And I can also yeah. tell you that the song from The Wizard of Oz, Over the Rainbow, mm -hmm. I forget what show it was, what TV show it was, but they analyzed the music in that song and the lyric and it represents an arc the musical notes the notation actually mm. arcs up and then it arcs back down so her vocal melody and the, the music that supports it underneath represents an arc which is the shape of a rainbow that really opened my young mind again to music is not just wallpaper it's it's just beauty and truth. It's, it's un unbelievable. And what people can do with it when they really, when they're able to harness its full potential as art, it's just incredible. It's funny that people, I don't know, I don't want to cast aspersions, but you, like me, love to just dig into songs and hear each instrument and how they work. And, you know, you try to imagine what the artist is trying to convey and that sort of thing, as opposed to some people who just kind of hear music in the background. And that is the greatest sin, I think, 
No, I'm constantly I'm constantly struck with the feeling because my passion, the depth of my passion for music and the drive to to learn more about it, it, it often makes me feel like people who don't share that, it's just tragic because it's like they're they're unable or unwilling to appreciate this entire universe of beauty. Mm-hmm. They're just not interested in it. And that's fine if music's not your thing, but it makes me sad because it's it's right there and it's life-changing it's transformative and and it's it's just amazing you know you if you're not interested and you can just walk right by it that's fine but it's there and this is why i enjoy doing your show and i enjoy trying to turn other people on to the music that i get so passionate about is because i want people to feel the same way it makes me feel yeah it's not for everyone i mean i think the people who tune into the show are of the mind that they want to dig in and consider different aspects of music and that sort of thing again i mean it's not for everybody and that's absolutely fine with me but i think it's just for me i kind of have a hard time understanding why that is but you know it's neither here nor there one thing i did want to say and i had forgotten when we were talking about uh, combination and uh, you told me about how that was an extension of the story that you told me on your second uh visit to the show, which was, I think, episode 68, where you made a friend over a Kiss record. What I wanted to tell you that I didn't tell you before was that that story, as heartwarming as it is, is is very popular with the listeners. You know, I put it on the 100th episode and people really enjoyed that story. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. It's really gratifying to know that that is resonating with folks. Mm-hmm. I thought it was great. Okay, so next is Motorhead and Orgasmatron. Talking about... Uh passion that's subjective i guess um Hmm. i firmly believe that this record is one of the greatest achievements in the history of rock music and if you want me to say that again i will (laughs) um it's an extremely powerful piece of music it transcends any kind of genre tag you want to stick on it yeah it's loud it's heavy it's motorhead but it is beyond rock music it's beyond heavy metal it it completely nails what it set out to do. It's supposed to horrify you. And it really carries a lot of, of anger and blatant hatred in it. And it's not just the lyrics and the music itself. It musically, it conveys the message in such a convincing way. And the message is Lemmy basically venting his feelings about politics and religion, which if you know anything about Lemmy, politics and religion are the same thing. He's well known for despising both. And the music and the the swirling noises behind everything, it all reflects his feelings so effectively. The delivery of his vocals, which is already a very unique thing. I am well aware that anger and hate are destructive feelings. They're not healthy emotions. But relating to a record like this that exhibits all those dangerous feelings is healthy, I, I believe. When you can feel those things vicariously, let me do all the venting. Let me do all the yelling and, and cursing. Let him do it for you. And it's cathartic. It resonates with me because I've had all these feelings. I think we all have had all these feelings at some point. Mm-hmm. It's really revelatory to hear somebody else venting that stuff. It's really good for a troubled soul to kind of have that partnership with a musician or a band or a record where it can really be therapeutic to get inside this song and feel it for four or five minutes and then step out of it and get back to work. Mm -hmm. I I think that that's heavy metal's greatest gift that it offers you catharsis and an opportunity or a channel to, to vent. And, you know, I'll be very honest when I was a kid, that's what heavy metal was to me. I love to just crank it up and, and turn it as loud as it could go and, you know, just let loose. I was I was an aggressive kid, and that's what heavy metal represented to me. I needed stronger sensations, and heavy metal gave them to me. I've always said it's heavy metal is power to the powerless. And for me, it was very much that, but it was also an escape. A song like Orgasmatron, it has to be heard really to be understood, and it has to be heard at a very loud volume, I think to really get it but it is just musical anger and hatred however it's a brilliant lyric and this guy is not just a you know a meathead flailing away at injustice in life he he's very articulate this song when this when this album came out it was a bit of a departure from motorhead it was produced by bill laswell who's a jazz musician and has a background with some avant-garde jazz records. So it was really a questionable choice, and there's a lot of strange sonics on this album when you compare 
Orgasmatron, the album, to the rest of Motorhead's catalog. And this song really stood out. And while Motorhead was never really a critics band in the 70s and the 80s, uh, a lot of critics took note of this particular song. I remember the article in Spin, the uh, review in Spin Magazine singled out this one song. It was almost the entire review was about this one song. It's so outstanding and such a strong song. Hmm, I didn't know that. Okay, shift gears next a little bit with Sammy Hagar's old outfit, Montrose, and Space Station Number 5. I don't have a lot to say about this song, Brent. It's just a, a lot of fun. It's kind of a thrill ride of a song. It's This song was light years ahead of its time. You know, after hearing Van Halen's first album and, and having our heads blown off by that in late 78, that was like a comet from the future. But then digging a little deeper and learning more about metal is specifically American metal history. These guys were from California, and this was 1973. It was produced by the same team that produced Van Halen's first bunch of albums. Uh, and it's kind of like the precursor of that Van Halen record. It's that strong. And it, it's it's amazing to me now, still, when I listen to it, I stare at that number, 1973, and I'm like, no, it can't be. Because yeah. if you line it up with a bunch of the other records from that year that are heavy, quote-unquote, it's this really sounds like an 80s record to me. This particular song, uh, it's got this crazy intro, crazy outro, and the middle of it is just all this thrust, forward blast of, of American energy. And it really outdoes a lot of the stuff from the UK and, and Europe that was happening at the same time, as I said. It's a lot of fun. It's Put this in your car somehow, iPod, CD, whatever you have, and just drive safely, but drive too fast for about five minutes, six minutes. <laughs> and really feel this song. It's just a lot of fun. Okay, we have a lot to talk about relative to your next tune here. This is, uh, I don't even know where to start. It's Ursa Major, and the song is Sinner. In my archaeology of, of trying to find anything and everything that, that makes my skin vibrate, this is one of the, the most notable finds in my collection. So anyone who's heard any of the early Alice Cooper albums or Aerosmith's Get Your Wings or Kiss's Destroyer, has heard Dick Wagner. Dick Wagner was a studio musician, uh, among other things. He was in a band called The Frost in, in the Michigan scene in the 60s. But he became producer Bob Ezrin's go-to guy. If Bob Ezrin was in the studio with a band and the guitarist just wasn't cutting it, he would call his pal Dick Wagner in to ghost, play some solos, play some guitar, uncredited. But he's on all the lead guitar on all the early Alice Cooper albums is Dick Wagner. Mm -hmm. And about maybe 25% of Aerosmith Get Your Wings, those guitar solos are Dick Wagner's. Another 25% are another guy named uh, Steve Hunter's. Because Jack Douglas produced that album, but Jack Douglas was an engineer that worked for Bob Ezrin. So when Jack Douglas found uh, Aerosmith's guitar playing a little bit lacking, Bob Ezrin sent him Dick Wagner. A lot of the leads on Train Kept Rolling, I'm sorry to say, are not Joe Perry or Brad Whitford. And he also played a lot of lead guitar on Kiss's Destroyer album. So now that we get that out of the way, in 72, he was in a band called Ursa Major, mm -hmm. right after he left the Frost. And the only other notable thing about Ursa Major's lineup is the bass player was an Amboy Duke. When I found out that this guy who played on all these records that I loved, um, after he burst my bubble, that Perry and Whitford maybe weren't as good as I thought, and maybe the Alice Cooper guitarists weren't as good as I thought. Maybe Ace Freely wasn't really as great as I thought. After I got over that, I needed to find out what else this guy did, and I found the Ursa Major album. It's amazing. It's Every song is written by Dick Wagner. He sings lead vocals on every song, and every song is really awesome. Nowadays, you can hear it on YouTube again. It's very simple. I don't want to hear any excuses. <laughs> there's no reason why you can't go check this out um if you like any of those bands you are going to like this album and this song that i i suggested you check out brent is the first song on the record and it's just one of the most incredible openings to an album i ever it, it's a masterpiece of composition and dynamics it's it's really well arranged and put together it, they're a three-piece band when we were kids we were limited to what was on the radio or what was in magazines, um, which really meant that we were kind of at the mercy of label money. The only things that kind of made the radar then were stuff that was paid for. 
this record came out and sank without a trace in 72 and been out of print forever. But it was an eye-opener for me that there's a ton of worthy stuff out there that didn't have the advantage of a giant promotion company or, or a label pushing it. So it's it's pretty much forgotten. Do yourself a favor and listen to this song. It's a little bit melodramatic, but that's okay. It's a little bit busy at the beginning. That's okay. It's really incredible. Yeah, you can hear the early Alice Cooper records influence, obviously, because it's Dick Wagner. But like listening to, to Sinner, it sounds like, you know, it wouldn't be out of place on Schools Out, for example. Well, he wrote Welcome to My Nightmare with Alice Cooper after the rest of the guys got kicked out of the band, I think. Yeah, when Alice went solo, um, Dick Wagner was his main co-writer, right up through Dada, I believe. Yeah. So, yeah, he's he's a really a pivotal figure in Alice's history, but... You, you're right, Brent. You can hear the Alice Cooper Group's sound in the beginning of this tune anyway, in the intro, as it as it builds and moves around, because they were really adventurous with their arrangements, and, and this is very much in the same vein. One other, well, two other interesting things about this record. So he, Dick Wagner, well, there's a lot of interesting things. First of all, Dick Wagner sings like a monster, which I didn't know. Yeah, I was shocked because, you know, find me a great, great in-demand world-renowned guitar player who's also a fantastic singer it's got to be pretty tough and this guy yeah. this guy really excels at both on this record he thanks al cooper and it's spelt with a k in the liner notes which is pretty funny I, and i never noticed that look on the back and you'll see it'll say thanks to some i don't know who it is but then he says and al cooper and it's spelled with a k he's talking about alice clearly I will check that out. Um, you know, I wrote one of my blog entries is about Hunter and Wagner. And mm. one of the things I found out in research in that blog entry was they got paid for the Alice Cooper sessions, 77 bucks <laughs> for one of the sessions he did. I think it was um, the song, My Stars on Schools Out. That's right. He was paid $77. So I'm I'm not surprised that maybe he wants to take a little dig back at Alice in the credits there because, you know, he's he's an adult and he agreed to do what he agreed to do. But he's uncredited Mm -hmm. on on some of the biggest rock records in the 70s. He's uncredited and and severely underpaid. So guys trying to make a living and obviously made it work. But I'm not surprised that he took a, a, a dig back at Al. It, it didn't come out until decades later that he played on Flaming Youth and Sweet Pain, like specifically played both those solos. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have yeah. you heard um, the remix, re-release of Destroyer? Yeah. It's it's kind of sad when I think what's included as a bonus material on the, the new version of Destroyer, which is every song remixed. Uh, yeah. They put Ace's solo back into Sweet Pain. It's awful. It's it's really awful. I'm I'm a huge Ace fan and an old school Chris fan, but it's an awful solo. So I'm not surprised if if um, Bob Ezrin was not happy with it and he he wants to have the hit record just as much as Kiss does that he called Dick Wagner and that the solo is amazing. You know the story goes that Ace Frehley had a very important card game at seven o'clock. I'm sure you've heard this story. And uh, they were set to record. I don't know if it was Sweet Pain, Flaming Youth, or whatever it was. But he walked out. He left the studio and left them without a lead guitarist. And so they sat there and thought, "Now what are we going to do?" And I think that's when guys like Wagner and uh, who's the other one they used? They used another guitar player. I can't think of his name. Rock and Roll Hoochie What's his oh, name? Oh, Rick Derringer. Yeah, Rick Derringer. Yeah. It's Rick Derringer played the solo in Under My Wheels on uh, Alice Cooper Killers. Yeah, that's cool. Eh? Well, here yeah. we go. We're going off on tangents here with the minutia, but that's that's just, I, I can't help it. There was one other thing about Ursa Major that I didn't know that blows my mind. In the original version of that band was Billy, Billy Joel. Joel. Yeah. Like, how crazy is that? <laughs> it's too bad that he, he found other things to do, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that would have been amazing to hear if he had progressed in a hard, the world of hard rock instead of right. what he did. I would love to hear that. As it's, obviously it's, it's, such a talented guy. Yeah. It's kind of confusing almost because, you know, what you know to be Billy Joel and you kind of juxtapose that against Sinner and this record, which is, you know, very hard rock. It's bizarre to even think that he could have been a part of that in any way. I think this is the song on my list that that most people are less likely, least likely to ever come across. So those who are interested in digging up really old, cool stuff should really pick this one tune to go dig up and check it out. 
Now, here's another one that people should definitely dig up. Taken by Force back in 77 by Scorpions, Will Burn the Sky. Yeah, awesome song. You know, those early Scorpions records from the 70s, I think they were on RCA in the U.S. with Uli Roth was the guitar player. Those records were always kind of a battle between Rudy and Klaus's crunchy three-minute rock songs and Uli Roth's Jimi Hendrix fixation. Mm -hmm. As one song is Rudy and Klaus and the next song is credited to Uli and it went back and forth album to album and you could tell just by listening who wrote which songs because one of them kind of sounded like Kiss crunchy hard rock and the other one sounded a lot like Hendrix and and of course the dead giveaway was if Uli Roth actually opened his mouth and sang it was it was so painful that it was was, that was definitely Uli but um, this song is kind of sits right in between those two extremes it's the sweet spot right in the middle the Scorpions were capable of real subtlety and really beautiful guitar music and, and beautiful ballads. Even back then, before the term power ballad was even a thing, they were they were writing power ballads. There's, there's at least one or two on all their first handful of records. Entrance and Virgin Killer have power ballads on them way before there was such a thing. Unfortunately, others ran with it and beat it into the ground and it became a cliche and they're all cookie cutter garbage. But there are some really beautiful passages in this song. And, but the burning, crunchy guitar is also there to it. As it moves back and forth between those two poles, it's a really dynamic listen, and it's really well-constructed, and I think it's just a gorgeous song altogether. It, the, everything works together really well. The juxtaposition of those two feels is really well done. You know, they did a tour about 10 years ago, I guess, and they let the fans vote for the songs in their set list. Yeah, They promised that whatever the top 45 minutes worth of songs that got the votes would be on the set list. And even though this song is a million miles away from any of their radio hits or MTV hits, this song made it into the set. And I, I think that says a lot that it wasn't just the most popular songs completely that made it into the set. It was also... This song is recognized as just a truly great Scorpion song. And they're another band, too, that it's easy to forget the 70s piece of their history because the 80s was so predominantly popular and the radio Mm -hmm. hits that they've had in the 80s and their appearance on MTV all the time in the 80s. There's an entire history of that band before uh, MTV. And there's some really great stuff there. And if you want to go back and listen to the less obvious stuff by them, this is where you should start. This song is just amazing. You know, you you read my mind there. It's funny because I was thinking when I saw this song on your list about Taken by Force and In Trance, Love Drive, Animal Magnetism, like all the old records. And I thought Scorpions had eight studio records before Love at First Thing. I counted them out. Blackout. It's crazy to think about how that could have happened. You know, Scorpions really kind of, you know, took off at Love at First Thing. That's when they really, I think, that was their big overground success, really, right? Yes. But they they had eight tries at it before they really kind of hit the super big time in the mainstream. And that just would not happen today. You get maybe one shot if you're lucky. You know, but it's it's very interesting to think that a band can make eight studio records and, and one live one, Tokyo Tapes, before they have a big hit record. Well, the other thing to consider, too, is that back then, well, first of all, labels signed bands back then to five, six album deals. Mm-hmm. The labels were ready. The first two or three records were going to be written off. It takes a while to really build any kind of name and brand and momentum back then when the only way you got to people was, you know, a one-page article with one picture in a magazine or maybe an opening slot on a tour. You didn't have the internet or, or MTV. It was a building thing that the record companies were prepared to spend years building a band, and that, that doesn't happen anymore. The other thing is that some bands used to put out two records a year, yeah, Kiss. You know, Kiss. I think Kiss did like three records in 13 months, mm-hmm. which is insane. So it is remarkable that a band was able to put out eight records before they really hit. But those eight records might have been done in, in five or six years. But still, the labels don't make that kind of investment anymore. I don't even know, to be honest with you, Brent, I don't even know if there are record labels anymore. I, um, all I know, I know so many people who make their own music and just post it on the internet themselves and, and they make a couple of bucks doing that. Why do we even need labels anymore? 
No, you don't. I mean, it's like writers needing publishers. You've got the internet, you've got your audience. If you can establish some sort of distribution through the internet, then, you know, you don't really need a middleman anymore. Right. That's a bygone era. Um, You got to, we benefited from because we got to hear eight Scorpions albums before they sold out. Right. (laughs) That's so true though. But again, there's some good stuff on those old records. In Trance is fantastic. It is. And the guitar playing, again, years and years ahead of his time. I guarantee that Eddie Van Halen, the young Eddie Van Halen, had In Trance in his record collection. I guarantee it. I would say so. Yeah. And uh, one more thing about Scorpions, those uh, those album covers were crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of a double-edged sword, I guess. Oh, certainly. Cause some of them, well, Virgin Killer went way too far. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you can get thrown off of Facebook if you post that particular album. Although I, I will say uh, it's a great album. It might even be their best album, in my opinion. It's it's has that uncomfortable tinge to it for sure. Uh, it was a really bad choice. A lot of their albums were their album covers were changed for the U.S. market, and you know that's probably why they never really hit over here until they got on TV because their albums covers were so bland and boring and, and awful. They were just basically words. They were peculiar. If you think about animal magnetism. It's a guy standing there with a dog and a woman. The dog is sitting at the man's feet. The woman is kneeling at the guy's feet, and he's holding a Carlsberg. Which <laughs> <laughs> is this bizarre, right? It's like a some sort of Art Nouveau thing, or is it just profane, or what is it? And, and Love Drive is even more peculiar. Well, it was striking, and I guess they were. You know, when you get someone's attention, that's half the battle. When I bought, yeah. when I bought Love Drive, it was wrapped in red shrink wrap. <laughs> So you could kind of see what was going on there, but not really until you got home and you took the shrink wrap off. So for listeners who are not familiar, go online and check out that album cover and you'll see what we mean. Uh, Next up, Black Sabbath, one of my favorite Sabbath tunes, Megalomania. Yeah, Brent, if you let me, I would have chosen the entire first side of this album. Yeah, as a song because the songs do kind of segue together. And a matter of fact, I think I read this somewhere before that this was their answer to Queen's "A Night at the Opera," where the songs kind of segue into one another that way. Yep. Is to be to work together is just a big elaborate suite of songs. But I'm picking Megalomania here. I, I could have picked "Symptom of the Universe" because it's it's just monumentally outstanding piece of metal. But I picked Megalomania instead because. It's it's something that kind of defies the standard notion of what Black Sabbath was all about. When when the critics were dumping on them constantly like they did in the 70s, they had the tag of being meatheads that can only do one thing and one-dimensional dinosaur riffs. And they were not a critics band, that's for sure. But this song is is gorgeous. It's it's like a bad dream. It kind of unfolds at a really laconic pace. Mm-hmm. Really hypnotic. Uh, as it moves through its different sections. And again, the lyrics are really important here because it, at the in backstory too is I'm a huge fan of backstory. Geezer Butler wrote these lyrics about their manager. Mm-hmm. At this point in the band's career, the manager was suing them and they were suing their manager back and forth. This whole album is kind of like a, a loose concept album about that situation, about how they were being exploited. That's right. The writ actually is is a direct attack on their manager. Right. And this song this this song gets even more personal with this guy. I think his name was Patrick Meehan. Mm-hmm. Um, Geezer, being the main lyricist in the band, writes this song, basically put a curse on this guy by writing a song that's really a timeless masterpiece about him and it's it's not a positive song, not a positive message. <laughs> the performances are awesome and the production touches really defy the tag that they had of of you know brainless idiots back then it's really a gorgeous song and the ending it's really unexpected of course we've all heard it a zillion times by now but it still really carries that charge at the end where things kind of pick up and every time that guitar riff returns there's some effect on it that distorts it further and further and further so i think it it reprises three times, and each time it reprises, it just sounds more and more disgusting. It, it's yeah. it's really amazing. The production touches on it. Uh, these guys were crafting art. They weren't just banging away, bashing away at 
guitars and amps. This whole album is a work of art. And again, they were in the worst situation of their career at that point. They weren't making any money. They were in court. They tell stories about how they would be in the studio literally working on the record and they would get served court papers wow. at the studio. So try being creative under those circumstances <laughs> and not knowing exactly where your future was going to lie, if you were going to be broke or... This album is eternally in my top 10 of all time. It has been since I was 16. And it's really a strong album, and this song is it's beautiful and it's horrifying. This is absolutely my favorite Sabbath record, bar none. Again, at the apex in terms of, I think, potential creativity, which is kind of funny because there's stories about Tony Iommi uh, having difficulty coming up with riff ideas and song ideas. Apparently, there was a huge concern on Geezer's part and Ozzy's part that Tony just couldn't come up with any, you know, you think about, uh, you know, all the classic riffs that he's written and he just wasn't coming up with anything. And people kind of panicked and they said, Tony, what do you need? Do you need a change in landscape? And and I think they went to, they, they went to LA to record this record. I think it was either this or another one, but there was a big concern that Tony Iommi's uh, creative juices were not flowing any longer. Well, imagine being in this situation where you're an artist and you create music for a living. That's how you pay your bills, and that's how you put food in your family's mouth by music. So now there's somebody else who is making all the money off of your work, and you find out that that person has taken all the money probably for the last 10 years and given you a fraction of of what you've actually earned. So you're sitting there, and you're trying to write a song, which is what you have to do to get paid, but you know as you're writing this song that, the way things stand right now, somebody else is going to make the money. What are you going to write? What are you going to come up with when you know it's just going to get stolen? That's when you're kind of at a crossroads and you have to you have to stop. If you're a musician, you have to stop worrying about the money and you're not doing it for money's sake at that point. You're doing it for art's sake. So it's just purely about art. And that's why this record is so great, I think, because they were like, well, you know what? I'm not going to try to write a hit song. I don't know what's going to happen to this album commercially. I don't know if I'm going to make a penny off of it. I'm just going to try to write the best piece of music I can possibly write just for the sake of the music. And, and that's, I believe that's why this record is so fantastic. Okay, next, The Who and Won't Get Fooled Again. What could you say about this song? This is one of those songs that, at least in, in my case, I've been hearing it for 50 years. Yeah. And, and you think you know it. You think you appreciate it. Oh, it's a great song. You know, The Who's a great band. This is one of their biggest songs. But you can get jaded about stuff like that. You can overhear stuff and, and really not appreciate it at the depth that it deserves to be appreciated at. Re-listening to this song is highly recommended. Everybody probably has this CD or this album in their collection. It's Who's Next. But when's the last time you put it on and listen to it? And as far as being a musician goes, this song and Bargain also on Who's Next. The ensemble playing on these songs is absolutely epic. These guys were born to play together. And these were in the days when it was just one live take. You know, they didn't construct albums back then the way they do now. They played in the same room at the same time. And if somebody made a mistake, stop, let us start it again. The magic that came out of this era is all that much more magical because of what could have gone wrong and, and what probably did go wrong often. But when you came out of it with a with something like this, it's incredible. And so the playing is absolutely otherworldly. But the song itself, the lyrics are brilliant. It's really a, a political protest song. It's a government sucks song. And those never get old, right? <laughs> no. There's, there's a crack about Hitler in it. Townsend is basically saying, is my audience stupid enough to get duped again? Is my audience politically savvy? Are they, are they doing this to themselves? Are we all doing it to ourselves? Shouldn't we demand better? Let's not let this happen again. Yeah. It's a brilliant, brilliant lyric. It's a little bit sarcastic um, because really he's talking about himself. He's talking about his own audience. But in that timeless intro that we all know, Oh yeah, it's just stunning. I don't have enough adjectives for this song, really. It's a well-deserved classic, and I honestly believe it's definitely one of the top three or four hard rock songs of all time. You could definitely make that argument. And it needs yeah. to be. It's on classic rock all the time, and it's it's just sort of become wallpaper. 
because you've heard it so many times, but have, when's the last time you appreciated it? When's the last time you listened to it and you really let it happen for you? You got to take that time. And this, this day and age is tough to take the time to really enjoy things to the extent that they deserve. But this is certainly one. You think you know this song? Again, sit down, put some headphones on, and just take seven minutes and sit down and listen to it. That's a really good point. You know, as you said that, I thought about ACDC's Back in Black. You know, when was the last time you really kind of stuck your head inside that record and appreciated for what it really is, as opposed to, you know, hearing You Shook Me All Night Long and kind of skipping to the next station or whatever it is, right? Listen to that record. I love that you say it was wallpaper. It's like wallpaper now because you hear it and you're so familiar with it that you think, eh, I kind of feel like I've gone as far as I can, but I don't think that that's possible. If you listen to those records, you can still get inside them and hear them in a different way, but it takes effort, unfortunately. One of the things that uh, that's happened to me over the years, my son just turned 18. I spent a lot of time with him musically. He took drum lessons for four or five years. So he learned how to play. The most popular book at the place where he was taking lessons is a song of hard rock classics, quote unquote. Okay. So he developed an interest in classic rock. And of course, I would lead him to the, the heavier end of that spectrum, of which mm -hmm. there's plenty. But I got to show him my favorite records, you know, driving in the car or sitting at home. Mm -hmm. And I would play him some of my favorite songs and some of my favorite records. And hearing them through him, it was like I had never heard them before. It was a completely mm. different experience listening. And, and it's funny that you mentioned Back in Black because we took a trip to Cape Cod a couple of years ago and I picked... Judas Priest's British Steel. Nice. And I picked uh, ACDC's Back in Black. I felt like I had never heard that record before because I was, I don't know how to explain it quite correctly. I was anticipating his reactions to everything that happened on the record. Mm -hmm. It's funny. The one song that he really liked from British Steel was Breaking the Law because he thought it was hilarious. <laughs> and, and it is hilarious. And that's why it's great. But yeah, re revisiting a lot of stuff that I had kind of grown jaded about uh, with him was a revelation. It's almost a gift to put these records away and not touch them for a decade or two. And then mm -hmm. find the time to sit down and put it on again without distraction and really, really get into it. Yeah, yeah, like we used I agree. To, When we were kids, we would, quote unquote, listen to records. Hey, you want to come over and listen to records? So what did you do? You you actually sat down on the floor and you stared at the album cover and you listened to side one all the way through and then you flipped it over and listened to the second side and then you went out and played. When's the last time you did that? I have a buddy, one of my neighbors. He was a guest on the show. His name's John Belton. We do that. We'll go back and forth and, and play songs and, and actually listen to them in the middle of parties. And people, it's funny because people are like, really guys but <laughs> we actually do that and it's a treat you know everything from like sam cook to april wine to whatever because i i feel like you you have to try to hang on to that stuff you shouldn't let it go i agree i, I you're reminding me of a story about when i was in my 20s i went to a party at a college at you know it was a northeastern university in boston mm -hmm. there was a party at a dorm and somebody put on deep purples made in japan Mm -hmm. And I checked out. I, I couldn't talk to anybody. I, I couldn't be social anymore because I, I was in antenna. I just had to kind of soak that album up as it rolled on. I just kind of checked out of the party. I, I couldn't function <laughs> as a social human <laughs> anymore. Um, I just had to listen to it. That's just the way my brain is wired. Everybody was coming over to me and saying, are you okay? Are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm doing great. <laughs> I interviewed uh, a friend of mine um, who was in a really successful local band here a couple of years ago. And we were down in his man cave and I had my little cassette deck and I was interviewing him. And he had like a, it was long enough ago where there was a six disc changer in the background. UFO's Obsession was one of the discs in the changer. Yeah. And we're talking back and forth, having a great conversation, just like you and I are right now. And the solo in Looking Out for Number One came on and both of us stopped talking <laughs> and neither one of us uttered another syllable until the solo was done and then we just resumed nobody acknowledged it we just kind of sat and waited for michael to finish his solo and we enjoyed every note and then we continued and the, the tape of that is hilarious because 
it was totally organic and it just happened and we out of respect for that piece of music we were silent i love that that makes perfect sense to me that is so great all right we have one more tune we're down to your last one it's by the ramones and it's i want to be sedated the perfect song sometimes um you know you get into these debates on facebook greatest song of all time greatest single of all time yeah greatest band of all time i can't decide which is the greatest rock single of all time it's either bohemian rhapsody or i want to be sedated Mm, both ends of the spectrum yeah it, it depends on my mood i guess um one is completely staggering work of genius to quote david eggers a staggering work of heartbreaking genius the other is also i mean being elaborate and complicated and uh, adventurous and expansive that's all fantastic but being simple and being silly and being concise uh, and playing together really well is also something to strive for and, and the results can be outstanding in that direction as well. They're, they're both, to me, both of these songs are equally as valid artistically. They're just different universes, but one is not better than the other. And, and uh, I picked I Want to Be Sedated out of the two because all my other songs on the list were seven minutes and this one's barely two. <laughs> I really do love this song, though. I really think it's perfect. There's, there's nothing wrong with this song. Every time it comes on, I'm with it right to the end. It's, it's like a little snack. It's just perfect. You know, talking to you about these songs, I, I love your outlook. I love your perspective in it. It always inspires me to see things a different way. And it, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, Bob. It really is. I, I want you to know that. Well, thank you. I'm glad uh, I'm glad I can participate. It's, it's really, it's important to me to be able to vent all these ideas and philosophies and, and adjectives and to have that supported instead of people wanting to lock me up. <laughs> Well, you'll always have the platform here. That's for sure. Well, when you find Count somebody it. that's receptive to this kind of madness, then then have me back as many times as possible. I'm I'd be very excited to come back. No, people are receptive. People listen to your episodes. I see that's that in the numbers. Hear. Yeah, no, it really is. And and like I said, they really appreciated that story about making a friend over a Kiss record. As did I. A lot of people commented on that and said that they thought it was great, and it was. So thank you for that. You are very welcome, Brent. Thank you. Been great chatting with you, sir. And uh, let's definitely get together outside of this medium somehow. We'll uh, we'll figure out how to do that. Cyberspace. Cyberspace. All right, man. This has been No Sleep Till Subway with Brent Jensen and my pal, Mr. Bob Mayo. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Subway, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.